The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark, glory to you, Lord Christ. And Jesus went on from there with his disciples toward the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And as they were on the way, Jesus asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they said, John the Baptist. Some say Elijah and some one of the prophets. Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Then he began to tell them, teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day rise again. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Turning and seeing the disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting in mind the things of God, but the things of man. And then calling the crowds to himself with the disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we pray by your spirit that we would so hear, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest this, your holy word, that we would be changed more and more to be like Jesus. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. <clears throat> Is there any hope for Peter? I mean, is there any hope for Peter and those who are like Peter? I mean, you have the story of amazing faith, right? Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the long-awaited king. It's such a big moment of faith that the church has a feast day dedicated to it, the confession of St. Peter on January 18th every year. It's a big moment. Peter gets that moment. Faith, immediately followed by epic failure. He gets a new name. He gets called Satan in the process. It's one of the sternest rebukes in all of Scripture. And you got to say, is there hope for someone like Peter? Now, there is hope, amazing hope, because here's the interesting thing. Peter is the one telling this story. What people often don't realize is that according to church tradition and good research, the gospel of Mark, written by John Mark, we find in the book of Acts, by tradition we understand that as Peter's traveling companion, he was not an eyewitness of Jesus and the resurrection, Peter was. And so what Mark is recording in Mark's gospel is Peter's preaching. So when you read Mark's gospel, you're getting Peter's take on the whole of the Jesus story. Peter includes this story in his own preaching, in the own, his own telling of the Jesus story. And I love that it's kind of stark compared to the version that Matthew tells in Matthew 16. 
Matthew 16, there's a little more detail. He kind of builds Peter up more. I mean, in Matthew's version, another eyewitness, you know, he says, you know, you shall be called Peter, Petros, the rock, and on this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. Peter leaves all that out. All Peter includes in his preaching is, I had this great moment of faith, and then this epic failure. And it's a picture, friends, of our discipleship as well. See, what Peter is going to come to discover in time, and the reason he includes this story in his preaching, is what Peter will come to discover is that Jesus' call on his life is not despite his Peterness. Jesus' call in his life is for the exact purpose of his Peterness, his failures. Jesus didn't call Peter because somehow he'd figured things out. Jesus called Peter to himself precisely because he was a failure and needed this work done on his life. This is always the story of who Jesus calls to himself. He calls people just like Peter. So in case you're rolling your eyes at Peter, oh, there's Peter doing a very Peter thing again. Oh, Peter. Or you try and psychologize Peter. Just remember that you are Peter. And so am I. We're all going to experience these moments of faith mixed with failure. But here's the good news. Here's the hope we find here in this story from Mark chapter 8. If you turn there with me, bidding in verse 27, what we see is this. The good news is that we who struggle with our faith are set back on track by Jesus. We struggle And we're set back on track. That's Peter's story here. But there's even more. The amazing news here is not only that we who struggle are set back on track, but that we're set back on track in a trajectory towards a good ending that is sure. That we know that it's actually going to lead us to a good and sure and certain ending. See, first we got to recognize that we struggle. We struggle with our faith. We all struggle in different ways. Right? Sometimes our struggle to live under the obedience of the Lordship of Jesus, to follow his ways, to surrender our lives to him. Part of why we struggle is sometimes due to our stupidity and sometimes due to our selfishness. And you're like, this has begun very well today, hasn't it? Stupidity and selfishness, but it's true. You know, it's funny, I actually left out a line accidentally uh, when I read. This is what happens sometimes when you try to memorize scriptures. You can drop a line. There was a line there around verse 32 when it says, and he told them plainly. Like he told his disciples these things plainly. That there's going to be suffering. And so I'm going to be trying to be as plain this morning as as possible. Let's speak plainly. We are stupid and we are selfish a lot of the time. And if you don't think I'm talking about you, (laughs) ask a friend. I mean, seriously. (laughs) This is true of why we struggle. First of all, we struggle with our faith because we are stupid at times. We are missing the data. We're getting it wrong. Look at verse 33. Jesus says in his rebuke to Peter, he says, you're setting your mind on not on things that are of God. You're not setting your mind on things that are of God, but things that are of man. So part of what that means is you're just getting this wrong, Peter. You're not understanding. And you may say, I mean, come on, it, it, it makes sense, right? He doesn't understand. He's just been told in verse 31 
that the Messiah, he just confessed Jesus Messiah, verse 29. Now verse 31, Jesus says, and the Messiah, the one you've long awaited for, is going to suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. Now this doesn't add up for Peter. And you could say, well, come on, Peter. I mean, don't you know Jesus had to come and die for the sins of the whole world and then rise from the dead and conquer you know, death and victory? Yes, you know that because you know the whole story. Peter doesn't know that whole story yet. In Peter's world, this is totally oxymoronic. The idea of the Messiah coming, the Christ coming to die. This does not make sense. Peter doesn't get it. And that's just the point. He doesn't get it. And so often we don't get it. We think we've got it all put together. We think we understand the things of God, but we don't. There are times that we are truly moronic, truly missing the mark, truly getting it wrong. And the problem is Peter doesn't know that he's got it wrong. He thinks he's got it right. You know, this story of a bunch of aeronautical engineers you know, are teaching how to build airplanes and their, their students have built this aircraft for their final project at graduation. And so they get all these aeronautical engineer professors on the plane and they're inspecting the aircraft to, you know, grade them and make sure they've done well. And after the inspection, the pilot comes out and says, well, professors, we have a got a special gift for you today. We're actually going to take you on the maiden voyage of this new aircraft. And instantly, all the faculty leave the plane hastily, except for one. One faculty member sits down, fastens his seatbelt, and they look at him and they say, why you, why of all the faculty would you stay for this maiden voyage? And he says, I feel totally secure. If my students built this, it ain't even gonna start. <laughs> and sometimes I feel like that's, my life as a student with Jesus. Like I just get it so wrong, especially when I think I'm so right. The words of Isaiah 55, thy thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Sometimes we struggle with our faith because we're stupid, but sometimes it's because we're selfish. See, verse 33 can read another way when he says you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. He's not just saying you're getting it wrong. He's saying your desires are wrong. There's something wrong in you, Peter. There's something you're desiring here that is not right, that is broken. See, it's interesting when it says in verse 32 that he took Jesus aside and rebuked him. It's a strong word. In fact, rebuke means he lectured him, he scolded him, or as Tom Wright says, Peter told Jesus off. Can you imagine? He has just declared and confessed that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited eternal king who is Lord of all, and you're getting this wrong, Jesus. I'm going to tell you off. I'm going to lecture you. I'm going to scold you. Jesus, shut up about the suffering. And you can say that's ridiculous. But is it? See, what's wrong in Peter is that it's not just that he doesn't understand the suffering that's coming, he doesn't want it coming into his own life. Peter actually very much does recognize the implication of what this means. A suffering Messiah means that his students and followers are going to suffer as well. 
And this is not something that Peter wants in his life. Again and again, the difficulty we run into is our self gets in the way. We become self-oriented. We become self-protective. It's all about preserving self. Peter is saying, listen, Jesus, I don't have suffering in my five-year plan. But Jesus says, the greatest obstacle to you entering into this life of discipleship that will involve suffering of one kind or another, the first step is that, verse 34, you're gonna have to deny yourself. Our self keeps getting in the way. And you know, we do this. We feel insecure. We feel like things are, you know, when, when we feel strong, you know, we're like, oh yeah, I can, I can be selfless for Jesus. But the minute things start feeling insecure around us, we start clinging to what we have, protecting, guarding ourselves. And here's the fascinating thing. It doesn't work. When we become self-oriented to try to secure ourselves, we actually lose our lives. It, it seems backwards. It's kind of like something Jesus says just a few verses later, that if you try to save your life, you lose it. And if you give your life away, you'll find it. And this has actually been proven with psychological imperial evidence. Here's what I mean. Okay, there's a study that came out a few years ago in the Journal of Clinical Psychology. This is a secular journal written by secular researchers, okay? They're not coming out from, the, from a faith basis. Here's what the discovery found. When they were dealing with patients, this is empirically backed evidence, okay? When they were dealing with patients who were suffering from high levels of anxiety, they found statistically that if the patient was advised to become more and more, to have their therapy focused around more self-oriented therapy, in other words, let me feel stronger about myself. Let me be, be more secure in myself. You go, girl. Just be strong in you. That in fact, the result was the opposite. Greater degrees of anxiety came up and there were greater degrees of symptoms shown. However, in cases where the psychologist was advising selfless therapy, where the focus needed to be less on you getting strong and more on you serving your family, the community around you, what kind of compassionate acts you can do in your life, suddenly the amount of anxiety dropped dramatically and the symptoms decreased at the same speed. That is psychological evidence that Jesus knows what he's talking about. And are we so surprised? Because Jesus, the one who made life, has told us how life actually works. For as we read in just two chapters later in Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Self gets in the way. Stupidity gets in the way. These are the reasons we so often struggle. But here's the good news. Point two we are set back on course. Jesus sets us back on track. Now, yes, it's a harsh rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. Verse 33, probably the worst rebuke in all of scripture. And yet, it actually is good news. This is Jesus loving Peter. He's correcting Peter. If Jesus didn't love Peter, he could just say, well, Peter, carry on your own way. Apathy says nothing. Love actually does the hard thing. Get behind me, Satan. Now, here's what we need to understand. This phrase, linguistically, get behind me, Satan, okay? It actually, linguistically, 
ties in with the very first thing that Jesus ever spoke to Peter. We hear, get behind me, Satan, and we think it means get lost. Get out of here. You fail. You're expelled. But that's actually not what it means. What it means, literally, is the same thing it meant back in the Sea of Galilee in chapter 1, verse 17. Jesus, the first time he meets Peter, walks by the Sea of Galilee, sees Peter and Andrew, his brother, in the boat, and what does he say? He says, follow me. That's what your English translation says. Do you know how it actually translates the best? Get behind me. Because that's the position of a disciple. Come and follow me. Get behind me. Watch what I do. Live my life. Let me show you. You get behind me. That's what discipleship is. That's the first word to Peter. Get behind me. And when Peter goes way astray, well, that same first call stands. Get back behind me. Get back in position. Get back in formation. Return to your place. A disciple's place is not getting ahead of his master, but following his master. Not correcting his master, but listening to his master. Not struggling and fighting against everything the master says, but submitting himself to the master's teaching, saying, though this is hard, I have to try to live into it. Following, this is the posture of a disciple. Get back behind me. Keep following. You know, I found it fascinating a couple years ago. Our Archbishop Foley Beach, who's also our bishop, we were at our annual clergy uh, gathering. We, we have a clergy retreat every year, and we get together to study the Bible and worship and pray together and build fellowship. Here's what shocked me and shocked most of our clergy. We were sort of new uh, into this new diocese, and there's the Archbishop, who at the time was not only our bishop, but also the Archbishop of all of North America and before Archbishop Mbanda from Rwanda took over, he was the head of the whole GAFCON Anglican Futures Movement. Okay, so he's over 65 million Anglicans worldwide. Here's what we found shocking, that during the whole of the clergy Bible study time, there was Foley in the room sitting there amongst the clergy with his Bible open and his notebook open taking notes. He was fully engaged. Every one of us would have completely understood if Archbishop Foley had to be in the hallway taking a phone call or was just busy doing other things. You know, I mean, clearly, he's got lots of important things to do. To see him sit there, session after session, fully engaged, listening to the study of God's word and taking vigorous notes, it's a model of our lifelong role as disciples and students. To be blunt, to be clear, let me speak clearly, there are no graduates of the Jesus School. There's only students. We never get to a place where we think we've achieved everything and understood everything. No, we're always students. And when we fail, it's not that we flunked out. It's that we need to be put back in position. Get back behind me. That word that was the origin of our call, get behind me continues to be the ongoing call our entire life. Get back behind me. Did you hear Jesus calling again today? Follow me. Get back behind me. You know what it is you're struggling with. You know what it is you're fighting with him about. You know what it is you're tempted to lecture him about. Get back behind me. But see, here's the thing. It's not just that we struggle and that we who struggle are set back, you know, on the right trajectory, 
in the right place, but it's towards a good ending that is sure. It's taking us in a direction that will end up with a good outcome, a sure and certain outcome. I don't know about you, but I'm terrible uh, playing video games. I'm the child of the 70s and 80s, so it meant that Nintendo came out and Ataris and all the rest, and I loved video games like every other kid my age, but I was terrible at them, and here's why I was terrible at them. Because here's how you win a video game. Some of you don't play video games. You're blessed. I'm not suggesting you get into it. But after I would spend 20 or 30 hours on one game, yes, I, what, what do you do when you're eight? But 20 or 30 hours on the weekend on a game, after you've hit that, that, that game over screen, you know, you, your character died this level yet again, and then you hit retry and retry and retry. And finally you win the level, and then you go up to the next level, game over, game over, game over, retry, retry. Eventually I just got frustrated. I was like, I'm not very good at this. And I'm worried that I may not actually get to the end of the game. Why am I spending? I'm eight years old, and I'm having an existential crisis about the fact I spent 30, 30 hours on this game that I might never end. And I would just give up. I, to this day, have only ever completed one computer game in my entire life because I give up. Because I say, it's not gonna get, it's not gonna lead me to the right ending. I'm not gonna get there. And here's the problem. We often think of our discipleship the same way. We worry, we wonder with all the two steps forward, one step back reality of getting back in line with Jesus, failing and then put back in a position of discipleship. Is this actually going in a good direction? Am I the remedial student here? Am I the one that's never gonna get it? Am I gonna keep trying at this and discover in the end that I just didn't quite cut it? Here's what Peter would tell you. Peter would tell you, take it from me, my fellow Petrine person. He'd say, listen, you will come to find, if you haven't already, that the sure good ending for you comes not because of your successes, but because of Jesus' saving work in your life. Your sure and certain good ending comes not because of your successes, but because of Jesus' saving work in your life. He does the work. And we see that in the text. Verse 27 tells us where this all happens. The backdrop is Caesarea Philippi. They're walking to Caesarea Philippi. And you say, what's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. They're walking up the road to Caesarea Philippi. And what that is, is a mountain that the city was built below. There's the mountain. And what's on the mountain? Caesarea Philippi was famous for all of its temples. They had temples to every god you can imagine, high places, altars, all built on that whole mountain. And on top of it, within that mountain, there were these deep, dark caves. They were very scary because the people of their day thought that if you went far enough into those caves, you'd probably end up in Hades. It is literally seen by the first century as the gateway to hell. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is literally standing before the backdrop of hell itself when he says, yes, the Son of Man will suffer many things, and be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and be killed and on the third day rise again. Jesus is declaring the resurrection as he's standing at the mouth of hell itself. He is declaring, I have victory. I have power. 
I can overcome everything that faces you in your life, including death and hell itself. This is how Jesus is declaring to us this sure and certain ending. It will not be because we figured things out, but because he has won the race for us. Jesus, let me be clear. Jesus, when he called Peter, knew exactly what it would take to heal Peter. When Jesus called you, he knew exactly what it would take to heal and make you whole as well. And it would require nothing less than his blood outpoured. I will take your sin upon my shoulder. I will bear the consequence of your rebellion so that you don't have to. I will stand here before the gates of hell and I will tell you the day is soon coming when I will die and rise again. And then Peter, you will understand. It's never been about you and your faithfulness. It's been about me and my faithfulness towards you. You know, I have a friend whose wife, he tells me, does this very strange thing when she reads. It's a great sign that there are sinners among us. When she reads a novel, here's what his wife does. And she reads lots of novels. She reads the first three or four chapters of the novel. And then she skips to the last chapter and reads the last chapter. And then she goes back and reads the rest of the novel. When he asked her, why such aberrant behavior? She said, I find I am able to cope with the ups and downs of the story when I already know the ending. And is this not our faith? That I and you, Peter before us, can cope with the ups and downs of our stories. The challenges we face, our stupidity and our selfishness, that we can face those ups and downs much better because we know how the story ends. In the words of Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. That's what we mean by a good ending that is sure. So is there hope for Peter? Is there hope for you? Is there hope for me? There's actually much hope. Because we who struggle, Jesus sets back in place again and again. Every week we come in here, maybe it's been a good week, maybe it's been a bad week. Maybe you think like, I'm winning the battle, you're not. Or I'm totally losing the battle, you're not either. But we come back in here and we face down the reality of the struggle of our faith and Jesus again sets us back in place. Get back behind me, follow me afresh. And then he invites us through word and sacrament to his table. He shows us the end. He shows us what is sure. That his body has been broken already for you. His blood has already been poured out for you. The victory is won. It is finished. Your destiny with him on this road of discipleship is nothing less than sure. And that's 
how we cope with the ups and downs of this life of discipleship. That's how we can endure knowing the end of the story. First, First Thessalonians 5, 24 says, do you believe it? He who called you is faithful. He will do it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.